Earlier this week, the first ever AI defamation lawsuit was filed by a Georgia radio host who claims that ChatGPT falsely accused him of embezzling money. It's time for a conversation about AI and the First Amendment. What happens if AI makes up false and damaging information about a real person? Should they be able to sue for defamation? And who or what is liable? And how does AI, which has neither reason nor conscience, challenge the underlying principles of the First Amendment that we protect free speech to protect freedom of conscience and the rule of reason? Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Joining us today to help us understand the emerging legal issues surrounding artificial intelligence and the First Amendment are the two leading thinkers on this topic. I'm so excited to convene them and can't wait to learn from them. Eugene Bollock is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law. He's the founder of the legal blog, The Bollock Conspiracy, and author of a new paper on AI legal issues called Large Libel Models. Eugene Bollock, welcome back to We the People. Thanks for having me. And Larissa Litsky is the Raymond and Miriam Ehrlich Chair in U.S. Constitutional Law at the University of Florida Law School. She's a leading voice on free speech online and the author of several important articles on the law of defamation. Professor Litsky, it's wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thank you. Eugene Volokh, let's begin by describing this very well-timed for our purpose uh, Georgia case. Tell us what, the, wh- what happened and what the legal claims are. Sure. So Fred Real, who is uh, a uh, online uh, political commentator, journalist, I think he runs the MLN.com site, uh, uh, which deals with Second Amendment issues, uh, was interested in a particular uh, Second Amendment-related case that was filed in federal court in Washington. So he goes to ChatGPT and asks it to summarize the complaint in that case. I'm told that actually ChatGPT is often pretty good at that. So it's unsurprising that that he might uh, uh, try it out because it's a long complaint. It's good to get a quick summary. Uh, but uh, ChatGPT responds by saying it's a legal complaint filed against one Mark Walters who's accused of defrauding and embezzling funds from the Second Amendment Foundation. Second Amendment Foundation is indeed the plaintiff in that case, but Mark Walters has nothing whatever to do with the case. He, he is uh, himself a commentator on Second Amendment issues, uh, but uh, just unrelated in the case. To the best of my knowledge, he's never been accused by anybody uh, in court or out of embezzling anything. Uh, it was just made up by ChatGPT's algorithm. Uh, so real, I take it, uh, smells a rat, figures out that something is uh, is wrong, actually um, uh, asks ChatGPT for a portion of the complaint r- related to Walters. ChatGPT outputs something that purports to be that. He realizes that this can't be right. And uh, my guess is, the complaint doesn't mention, but my guess is he passes it along directly or indirectly to Walters. Um, uh, my sense is that they know each other. I think Walters has written for real site uh, in the past. Um, so, so in any event, Walters then sues uh, OpenAI, saying, "Look, uh, you guys are libeling me." 
and that's where the case stands. It's filed in Georgia state court now. It seems pretty likely it's going to end up in Georgia federal court because it looks like the parties uh, have different citizenship. The lawsuit is probably going to be over more than $75,000. That's enough for federal jurisdiction. So it probably will end up being in federal court, but it's in court now. Larissa, uh, tell us more about the Georgia case, and then what what are the legal issues? What would Walters have to prove to prove uh, defamation, and and what are his uh, chances? Well, one thing that I find so interesting about this case is that, um, first off, the, the requester of the information doesn't really appear like he was asking leading questions to to send chat gpt down this uh false avenue and then it even seems as if the requester was taking steps to uh try to correct it or try to verify it in some way and chat gpt didn't take the hint and that's really interesting because chat gpt does learn as you go through a colloquy with it when you're requesting information it can improve as you say no that's not right you know and and then it can go to different sources and verify them but that certainly didn't happen here the other thing that i find so interesting about this case is it invents a document that makes the defamatory allegation more credible. I mean, normally it, it kind of doubles down on the the defamation here, um, which is really a, a, a unique and interesting challenge in this regard. So in an ordinary defamation case, you have to prove that the allegation is defamatory, which is pretty easy here because they allege that he is accused of, of uh, being engaged in fraud. Uh, You have to prove that it identifies the plaintiff, which is, again, easy here because it identified him by name, that it was published, uh, which normally that just means that it's 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 made available to at least one third party. I think uh, Eugene's made a good case in his new article that that element can be met in cases like this. And then depending on the status of who you're defaming, you usually have to prove some degree of fault in getting it wrong. Uh, If it's a public figure or a public official, you have to prove that you knew or recklessly disregarded the falsity of what you were publishing. Or if it's a private figure, like this guy might be a private figure involved in a, a matter of public concern, you have to prove negligence, that you behaved unreasonably in your information gathering and uh, pro- and verification processes. But of course, applying concepts of fault to a non-human entity is quite difficult. And I think that's the biggest challenge of these um, open AI cases uh, and this one and those that are likely to come. So I hear you saying that the most challenging elements here are first, uh, publication, and uh, Eugene has argued that simply making the publication available to one third party counts as publication. And then second, the, the question of uh, unreasonable behavior. Can can a machine know or recklessly disregard uh, falsehood or behave unreasonably given that machines don't have intent? Eugene, do I have that right? And tell us about those challenges. Right. Just to be precise, uh, it's well established that communication to one person is enough to satisfy publication for libel law purposes. Classic example is a is a false job reference. If you uh, if you say, oh, this person worked for me and he stole money from me, and that's false, even if you just say it to one person, that that's libel. 
uh, let's say if you say it in writing, it's liable. Uh, the question is whether this publication requirement would play out the same way when the publication is by an algorithm rather than by a human being directly. And I think the answer is probably yes. But I agree entirely with Larissa that this is that uh, uh, it's complicated to figure out how you ascribe mental state to an AI. I think the answer is that you need to ascribe mental state to the company that produces the AI. One way of thinking about it is imagine you get hit by a self-driving car. And your claim is, well, this car was, is a defect, it was defective because it was essentially negligently designed, because that's... That's what uh, design defect liability uh, under product liability law ends up being. It's negligent design. Well, negligent on whose part? The creators, right? So likewise, the claim might be uh, this uh, software was negligently, uh, let's say, ChatGPT was negligently designed in a way that uh, uh, that uh, uh, publishes uh, libels, and there was a more there was a better, uh, uh, more reasonable design. Or if the claim is based on knowledge or recklessness as to falsehood, it would be not what ChatGPT knows, because it's true it doesn't know anything. It's what OpenAI knows. So if, for example, the plaintiff in this case had sent a letter to OpenAI, or email, presumably, and said, you guys are libeling me, stop. And OpenAI didn't do anything, didn't add any code to try to block that output of that kind of information and the like, then in that case, maybe at that point, the knowledge or recklessness as to that particular false statement requirement is satisfied, not because of what ChatGPT knows, but because of what the human beings at OpenAI know. That would be my sense. But there, I'm on much less clear territory, uh, much less solid ground, because we are talking here about adaptation of old rules to fairly new technology. And it's an interesting question how courts will, uh, uh, will handle that. Larissa, do you agree or disagree about the idea that it's the creator of OpenAI whose uh, knowledge is relevant and uh, that uh, that knowledge could be satisfied if they have notice? Uh, or are there different ways of looking at the question of knowledge and intent when it comes to AI? I think there are different ways of looking at the question of knowledge and intent. And I don't think we have clear-cut answers because the, our, our rules are just not designed for this scenario. They're designed for a very different scenario where a human actor is making these decisions. And so one of the questions I, I think we have to grapple with is if you are putting a communication system out there that gets it wrong X percentage of the time, that invents hallucinations that could be false and defamatory X percentage of the time, is that act itself sufficient to base liability on is the knowledge that you're going to be systematically putting out that false information on, uh, you know, in a certain percentage of cases enough to, to make you culpable when your product, your communications product inevitably causes harm. And I do think Eugene makes a good point that it's almost like a defectively designed product I, the, on the on policy grounds, you have to think about though. Don't we need OpenAI to have some room to innovate so that it learns and improves? If we don't give any any play in the joints for the innovation to occur, we'll never get to better, more truthful, more accurate, more reliable uh, search results. Eugene, there have been a number of cases that you've written about of. AI hallucination, making stuff up, uh, some of which is 
defamatory, like a hallucination about my GW law school colleague, Jonathan Turley, and some of which is simply false, like the brief filed in court recently that was hallucinated. Tell us about some of those well-known cases that you've written about and what different legal issues that they raise. Right. So I think this is the first libel lawsuit that has been filed. There had been a threat of, of a lawsuit that had been publicized. There was a mayor of a small town in Australia uh, who um, sent a demand letter to, uh, to OpenAI saying, stop publishing this allegation against me, your own allegation. Nobody had made it before against me that I, uh, that, that I was guilty of, of, of taking bribes in a bribery scandal that was apparently hallucinated by ChatGPT. Um, likewise, I ran some, uh, I, I gave it some prompts. Uh, at one point, I just wanted to know what it had to say about a particular person who was accused of, of, uh, of fraud. And he said, and it said, oh, he, uh, he was actually, he pleaded guilty to federal wire fraud charges, all made up. Uh, I also asked, uh, is there a sexual harassment problem in American law schools? And give five examples. So he gave five examples, two of which were actually examples of stories that had been in the news. And three, which again, as best I could tell, were entirely made up, one of which was about Jonathan Turley. And then he ended up writing a story about that that then led to a lot more coverage. Um, so, so yes, uh, uh, it's something that uh, ChatGPT does quite often. Uh, so again, remember I asked it for five examples and two were valid and three were not. I don't have a quantifiable data, but it's roughly that. Like if you ask it about things uh, that uh, that are pretty specific, it seems pretty good in general. If you ask it for a kind of a general summary of something, it often does a good job. But if but if you ask about things that are quite specific, it will very often, very often, uh, uh, make false statements. Now. Um, uh, as you point out, a lot of the false things that it says may not be libelous because they don't damage anyone's reputation, except they may damage the reputation of someone who relies on it. Uh, so uh, just yesterday, there was a filing in uh, federal court where a lawyer explained, after having been berated by a judge, uh, and uh, at the demand of the judge who said, explain yourself, counselor, he filed that affidavit where he explained why it was that he filed this motion that had made up precedence. And um, he says, well, you know, I don't practice much in federal court. Our law firm didn't seem to have access to federal court databases. He apparently didn't know of all the free online federal court resources that are out there. Uh, so I just, I heard all these things about Chad GPT and how great it was. So I just gave it uh, gave it some some requests, and it wrote up this draft of the motion. I just assumed it knew what it was talking about. And then when somebody prodded me by asking, you know, are these real cases? Well, I asked ChatGPT and gave me, gave me uh, excerpts from the cases. I said, is this a real case? ChatGPT said, yes, it's a real case. Um, so the problem is, actually, the problem is twofold. The problem is, much of the time, ChatGPT actually provides shockingly accurate results. That there are news stories, which I have no reason to doubt, that uh, that report that it uh, performed at the 90th percentile of uh, of bar takers on the bar exam. You know that, that's pretty good, um, uh, but that actually makes it more dangerous when it makes up stuff. 
if it were just known to be a bunch of monkeys and a bunch of typewriters or a Ouija board or something like that, it wouldn't be dangerous. It wouldn't be useful, though. It wouldn't get $13 billion in uh, an investment, as it apparently recently got. Uh, but at least it wouldn't be that dangerous. But here you have a combination of something that is that is often quite reliable. People end up trusting it based on experience, but that trust is often misplaced. By the way, note everything I say applies equally to human intelligence, right? If AI has just invent, has just proven itself able of make uh, to make stuff up and uh, and just blatantly. Um, uh, make uh, make false statements without any shame and with with maximum seeming confidence. That's just like people. Yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, and, and I want to ask about punishable and unpunishable falsehoods in a moment. But just a, a few more beats on defamation, uh, Larissa. Not everyone agrees with Eugene that liability for the chatbot is appropriate under current defamation law. Uh, Ronell Anderson-Jones from the University of Utah has said that if the defamatory falsehood is generated by the AI chatbot, it's harder con to conceptualize this within our defamation law framework, which presupposes an entity with a state of mind on the other end of the communication. And she says that some scholars have suggested the remedy here resides more in a product liability model than a defamation model. Uh, wh wh what do you uh, make of that uh, argument? Well, I think Eugene has considered that argument, and uh, as well as another author, uh, Nina Brown, has considered that argument. And I think that's somewhat where we're going to have to go, because if you are putting out a defective communications product that's producing these erroneous results that cause harm, uh, a you know, a substantial percentage of the time, it seems fair to make that industry internalize some of the cost of the harm that it's it's you know, imposing upon society. And so uh, I, I think Ronell is correct that the culpability that traditional defamation law looks at doesn't quite fit here. And that's why we need to look to other areas of tort to say, what is the culpability? And the culpability is putting out a communications tool that's that's basically defective. Now, the hope is it's defective now, but it's going to get better and better over time. And how do we develop a liability regime that allows it to improve and get better and better over time so that it is accurate? I think one thing that the story about the, the legal case involving the lawyer relying on ChatGPT illustrates is that if you're a journalist looking to ChatGPT as a reliable source without verification, that could very well constitute actual malice. And if you publish based on a chat GPT result, uh, you could definitely be liable for defamation. And I don't think you'll be able to easily defend saying, well, I published it because chat GPT told me to. Eugene, tell us more about your solution. You have argued that when the actual malice standard applies, the standard might be satisfied if the AI company gets actual notice of particular spurious information. And in practice, this would require companies to implement a notice and blocking system similar to notice and takedown under uh, copyright and trademark infringement law. Tell us about how that would work uh, in, in this Walters case and, and elsewhere. Sure. So I think there are basically two ways in which uh, the AI companies could be held liable under existing law. Uh, existing law as adapted in modest ways to this new technology. One is when the so-called actual malice standard applies. Of course, actual malice is this 
weird legal phrase. It doesn't actually mean malice. It means knowledge that the statement is false or is likely false, also known as knowledge or recklessness or knowledge or reckless disregard. So when the actual malice standard applies, there has to be actual knowledge on the part of the company, let's say on the part of OpenAI as to ChatGPT. And that would usually be satisfied by a takedown demand. Uh, that uh, uh, just like, let's say you're a reporter, you're writing about a public figure. Uh, the standard there is knowledge or recklessness standard. And you thought that a certain statement that you keep mentioning in your columns is correct. Okay, then you're off the hook because you, as to those columns, because you sincerely thought that statement was correct. But then the, the, the public official emails you and says, no, 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 this is false and provably false. And here's all the evidence. At that point, if you keep, if you keep publishing that statement going forward, then in that case, you would be liable. Uh, so, uh, so that would be, again, this kind of notice and blocking regime where once they're on notice, they have to create some code. And I don't think it's, it's that difficult to create just to maybe some post-processing code that takes the output of, uh, say, ChatGPT and identifies names and looks it up on a, looks them up on a list of, of, uh, uh, notices that it has gotten that particular statements about particular people may be false and just stops outputting those statements. It requires some coding, but, you know, open AI is in the coding business. Um, the other theory is a negligence-based theory. Now, when does libel law allow negligence-based liability? One possibility is as to statements and matters of purely private concern. So let's say some allegation that somebody, especially somebody relatively low profile, had uh, had an affair, let's say, or something along those lines. Um, another possibility is if it's a statement on a matter of public concern about a private figure, um, uh, and uh, uh, there's proven actual damages. So if, for example, somebody lost a job or lost a business opportunity or even lost friends, perhaps, lost social opportunities uh, um, uh, as a result of a statement, that, that, that may be very hard to prove in many situations, but in some, sometimes they could say, yeah, you know, somebody stopped doing business with me. And when I asked why, he said, because I looked you up and they accused you of being a child molester. He says, no, no, this is all made up. That's, uh, I have actual damages. Uh, and even if the accusation of having committed a crime is a matter of speech on a matter of public concern, I'm a private figure. I should be able to prevail on a negligence theory. So what does negligence look like? I think it's not a question of, do you use negligence liability or do you use products liability? I think products liability offers a helpful analogy for negligence law. Technically, to be pedantic, products liability law does not apply to, for reputational damage. If you look up, for example, the very important work on products liability law, very influential, the restatement of torts on product liability, uh, it specifically has a provision that says that uh, this only applies to situations where product defects cause damage, physical damage to person or property. But, so pure economic loss, lost business opportunities, you can't sue for products liability uh, based on that. But you can sue for negligence, and products liability law has a lot to say about what it means to be negligent when you are deploying a product. So one way you can negligent, you can have products liability is by engaging in negligent design, in designing a product that is unreasonably dangerous, which is to say that there are alternative, reasonable alternative designs that would have avoided the danger. 
So I think in this kind of negligence-based libel lawsuit, when that's a, when negligence is available as a theory under libel law, you can import these concepts from product design law and say, wait a minute, this is a badly designed product. Uh, it uh, 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 it hallucinates more often than a better designed product would, or or it reports things between quotation marks that it has no business reporting between quotation marks because a reasonable designer would recognize that the stuff between those quotation marks may not actually be literally accurate. Uh, so that those are, I think are the main theories uh, uh, for libel by AI. Larissa, what do you make of Eugene's proposals and how would they work in practice? Would, would Walters object that the AI had hallucinated about him and the machine would be programmed not to make future statements about him? And if someone felt that AI were unreliable and inaccurate on a systematic basis, could legislatures simply ban its use across a whole range of information gathering purposes uh, consistently with the First Amendment or not? Okay, so there's a lot in that question. So let me let me take it systematically. So one of the things that Eugene talked about is adapting negligence concepts by analogy to uh, products liability law, which I think is a good and valuable suggestion. Who would do that? That would most likely be done by a judge interpreting tort law, the common law, uh, and reasoning by analogy, and it, you know, it's a stretch. It's a stretch of existing law. It's not clearly covered under existing law concepts of negligence. So you're going to have to stretch and reason by analogy, and have some common law creativity there, and have a judge willing to engage in that kind of creativity. A notice and takedown um, liability regime, probably that would most likely be enacted through legislative uh, uh, work. So you're going to have to have uh, a law saying if you have, I mean, Eugene's arguing you could do it by as an analogy uh, on the actual malice point. But I think the easiest and most least complicated way to get there uh, would be through legislated work. And then the last question you asked me was about constitutional law principles. And is any of this even really fully protected speech? And I think the answer is mostly the answer is it is protected speech because we need to protect it uh, in order to to protect our right to receive information. It's a valuable source of information. And um, we worry about the effects of, of saying that it's not protected speech. It, it you know does open up to governments to just entirely shut down access to whole uh, media of, of new communication. I think some of the TikTok bans are, are instructive in this regard in terms of government motives. Uh, but but it's obviously a complex adaptation problem that needs to proceed on multiple different fronts at, at once by people who have a sophisticated understanding of how large language models work. And that's where um, I think it gets really difficult. Absolutely. And, and what makes it so uh, fascinating. Eugene, uh, Many theories of the First Amendment emphasize the self-expression and reason of the speaker. As Justice Brandeis said in the Whitney case, those who won our revolution believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties. And that interest obviously does not apply to AI, which has no faculties of reason. But Larissa mentioned the listener's interest in information gathering. And indeed, the law does protect forms of speech like commercial speech, which are not forms of self-expression, but contribute to the listener's interest in information gathering. Given that, under current First Amendment doctrine, could AI speech be regulated 
like commercial speech, uh, maybe more intensely than uh, purely political speech, but not banned altogether? Or do we need to rethink our entire theoretical framework for First Amendment regulation? It's an interesting and difficult question. My tentative thinking is that AI output should be as protected as other speech. And one way of thinking about it is, imagine that the government were to say, you know, Aristotle, he had all these weird thoughts. They're kind of obsolete now. People maybe take them too far. Some of them are sort of dangerous. Not our kind of guy. We're just going to you're just going to ban republication of Aristotle. Does that violate Aristotle's rights? I doubt it. You know, Aristotle, I think, is beyond the reach of human law at this point. Uh, now, I suppose you could say, well, what about the publishers? People might want to republish it, so they have the right, even though even though they didn't create a word of it, they didn't even create a trans the translation, they have their own free speech rights. You could say that, though equally then you could say OpenAI, the human beings who run OpenAI, equally have the, uh, the right under the same rationale uh, to, to uh, put out ChatGPT and have its output be protected. True, they're not the ones who actually generate the specific details of the output, but neither is the publisher of Aristotle, as, neither is he the author of, uh, of what Aristotle wrote. Uh, I don't think that's how we deal with the Aristotle ban. I think we'd say, you know, the rest of us have, have a right to read Aristotle. And, you know, some of the stuff may be wrong, but it'll be up to us to figure that out. Um, and uh, uh, to the extent that some of it may be there are some things published by uh, by people who are dead might be libelous. Well, you could imagine some liability against publishers for that libel, but again, that would be constrained by First Amendment principles. I'd say the same with regard to um, with regard to ChatGPT. You don't have to have some rights holder with self expression rights present. Uh, to have a First Amendment claim there, just like you don't have to have Aristotle's First Amendment rights be in play uh, with regard to the Aristotle ban. Uh, it's enough if restriction on ChatGPT interferes with the rights of the public or rights of users to use it, uh, uh, to read its output. Another way of thinking about it is in recent years, uh, many lower courts have uh, concluded that the First Amendment includes a right to gather information. Chiefly, this has come up in situations where there are restrictions on video or audio recording. And the Supreme Court has never quite squarely confronted that, but it has certainly talked about First Amendment protecting the rights to gather information. Well, that too is an important listener interest. Many people do use ChatGPT to gather information, although I hope they use it with suitable skepticism, as much information gathering should, uh, uh, should include. So I think one way or the other, I think we get to full First Amendment protection. Whether we say OpenAI has rights over software that, that it did create and it did program in certain ways. OpenAI is deliberately trying to, uh, uh, to include certain messages in some respects, exclude other messages. So we could say it's OpenAI's First Amendment rights that are at stake because of their self-expression indirectly through ChatGPT. Or we could say it's the rights of readers um, uh, as readers or as information gatherers that are at stake. But one way or the other, I think the First Amendment is in play. 
Of course, there are exceptions to the First Amendment, and one of them is libel. So that doesn't preclude libel liability, but that suggests that the First Amendment um, defenses that have been erected by the court in libel cases should apply, I tentatively think, to uh, AI output as well. Larissa, you raised the question of broader protection under current law for lies, unpunishable lies, and, and, and they're broad. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that some lies are constitutionally protected even if the speaker knows the statements are false. Those include false statements about philosophy, religion, history, the social sciences, the arts, and the like. That's from United States versus Alvarez, where five justices emphasized uh, the danger of putting the state in the business of deciding what's an opinion and what's a fact, and therefore allowing uh, broad protection for lies when they're not defamatory. How would that apply to the many other cases of AI hallucinations that are, 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 are lies uh, that may not be defamatory, such as the made-up brief and so forth? And more broadly, how should the law think about uh, non-defamatory lies generated by AI. So U.S. versus Alvarez was a Supreme Court case that involved someone who falsely claimed he had won a Congressional Medal of Honor, and he was prosecuted for a crime under the Stolen Valor Act, That and that law was a federal law making it a crime to falsely claim you won these, these medals. And the argument was that we needed to punish people who did that because it would undermine the value of the medal to those who had legitimately won them. And the Supreme Court struck down that law, and they did it in a very interesting way. So first off, they didn't say that lies are particularly valuable. Uh, they did find the lie in this case to be protected, but it's because the lie didn't cause what I would describe as a cognizable harm. Now, there's certain kinds of harms that uh, Trump First Amendment protection, like defamation, a truly defamatory statement, can trump any First Amendment protection that a defamatory lie could have. So the defamatory part trumps the lie part in terms of that. But I think you have to understand Alvarez uh, in light of this strong strand of distrust of government in our First Amendment jurisprudence, that we don't want the government set up as an arbiter of lies, particularly when those lies don't cause serious kinds of harms that we are concerned about giving compensation for. And so the court said, don't ask whether the speech is valuable first. Ask first whether it's harmful. And they found that it wasn't harmful in that case because in 30 seconds you could Google and find out that the guy wasn't really a Medal of Honor winner. So it relies on trusting us as citizens to behave rationally, to use our critical faculties to sort truth from falsity, and a distrust of the government to be the one that's telling us what's truth and, and what's false, particularly when the speech doesn't appear to be especially harmful. But defamatory falsehoods have always been punishable under the First Amendment uh, if they are you know, particularly even about public officials and, and celebrities, if they're intentional lies, knowing falsehoods, or they're reckless, recklessly disregarded falsity types of statements. Eugene, given Alvarez, are there other forms of non-defamatory lies generated by AI hallucinations 
that are cognizable under current law. And, and we've talked about a range of them from the made-up briefs to the uh, simply false uh, historical information. Um, does the current law give that kind of lie a, a broad uh, breathing room? And, and should it? Right. So I think the analysis, again, here would be the same as for false statements uh, uh, put out by other um, by other entities, which is a weird way of saying put out by humans. <laughs> we are now the other entities. Uh, so, so let me give you an example. There is the false light tort, which uh, uh, generally deals with false statements that are offensive, not because they damage reputation, but because it's just offensive to have certain false things said about you. So, for example, if somebody falsely says that I have cancer, then, you know, it's not that it's bad for my reputation. It's that it's just offensive for people to, to be, for have that be said about them, maybe have them be objects of pity that they think, or even of sympathy that they think is misplaced because, like, people are feeling bad for them and people are, are expressing kind of their, their, their support when there's really no, no, no reason to do that. So imagine that AI, that uh, a chat GPT just hallucinates that. You could imagine a false light claim. Note how this ties into Larissa's point, that, that that false light tort is generally seen as constitutionally valid because it involves a, a particular fairly, a fairly individualized harm. It's actually a harm to a particular person, not as severe probably as harm of damaged reputation, but severe enough that the Supreme Court in a couple of cases has allowed that kind of liability for uh, false light, and probably Alvarez doesn't undo that. Here's another example. Let's say that ChatGPT outputs um, uh, certain statements that are, uh, that like certain advice about how to treat some illness. And uh, that advice is just false. And that causes physical harm. Generally speaking, even negligently conveyed information that causes physical harm might, in theory, be subject to liability. And certainly, knowingly false information that causes physical harm might lead to some liability. It's not open and shut. There's actually a Ninth Circuit case, there's say a federal appellate case from uh, many years ago, where there was a lawsuit against a mushroom encyclopedia, the publishers of mushroom encyclopedia, uh, which report, which in the encyclopedia described some mushroom as safe to eat, even though it was deadly. You'd think there might be liability there. No, says the court. No liability there, at least on a, on a negligence theory. Uh, so there's some uncertainty there, but at least there's some possibility of that kind of liability. Now, to be sure, maybe uh, ChatGPT or OpenAI could deal with some of that through a suitable disclaimer by requiring people to click on something, say, I acknowledge that this may not be accurate and I waive any right to sue. Uh, open AI. Um, so maybe that kind of disclaimer might be upheld, although that's not clear, especially when physical harm is involved. But also, you could imagine this causing harm to a third party. Let's say, for instance, that uh, that uh, uh, Chad GPT tells me this mushroom is safe to eat, even though it's been actually specifically been alerted that that is false and that's a hallucination that Chad GPT routinely outputs. And then I feed the mushroom to my wife. She didn't waive her rights. Uh, so as a result, she could in principle sue. Uh, she could sue me for, uh, for foolishly relying on ChatGPT, but she could in principle sue OpenAI for, uh, for wrongfully passing along that information. So in theory, there could be such liability. Here's what I don't think there would be liability for. Imagine it, 
ChatGPT says, yes, uh, 9-11 was an inside job, uh, that it was the American government that destroyed the, the, uh, the, the Twin Towers. That's false, but it's unless there's some particular person it's accusing, that that's something that is con constitutionally protected from liability, even if it's a knowing falsehood under, case, under Alvarez and other such cases. Very helpful to have that distinction between falsehoods directed at particular individuals and those that are more generalized. Uh, Larissa, the Wall Street Journal recently reported about a chatbot uh, that impersonated Taylor Swift, available through banter AI, and uh, invited people to ask about her music or her relationships. And of course, the use of AI to impersonate political candidates and celebrities may well be rampant. Uh, to what degree does current law make that actionable, and how does law have to adjust? Uh, that's a great question. Deepfakes used to create a defamatory assertion of fact can easily fall into a defamation claim. Uh, but I, I don't, with deepfakes, I think we're concerned uh, beyond just defamation, we're concerned with. Uh, disinformation, military disinformation. There's already been some uses of that in the Ukraine context, is creating false videos to suggest something that never happened. Um, I think, as you pointed out, the fraud context is uh, one in, in which uh, deepfakes are going to be a serious concern. And there's no problem with punishing fraud. It's, it's you know, creating a deep fake to perpetrate a fraud is just going to be considered a form of conduct unprotected by the First Amendment. Um, disinformation, as Eugene pointed out, is a harder question because we normally distrust the government when it uh, goes about policing disinformation and setting itself up as the arbiter of truth unless we have a specific cognizable harm to an individual that we can we can point to. And so uh, deepfakes used to perpetuate disinformation are um, unlikely to be uh, capable of being regulated specifically by, by the government, uh, although I can envision some uh, transparency requirements. And I think in general uh, with chat GPT and with some of these deepfakes is some of our solution to these problems are going to be in mandating transparency around the issue that they are fake. Eugene, tell us about other legal issues that could arise out of the misuse of name and likeness and some open legal issues here. Yeah, so um, uh, libel is one uh, kind of tort that is based on what people communicate. False light is another. Um, there is the so-called right of publicity, uh, which is the right to, exclusive right to use one's name or likeness for certain kinds of commercial purposes. But that is, a, in many respects, considerably narrower right. Uh, after all, for example, a, 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 an unauthorized biography of a person uses their name and likeness and life story for commercial purposes. Um, and newspapers write all the time for commercial purposes, hoping to make money. You know, maybe sometimes they don't succeed, but they try at least uh, uh, by writing about people. Uh, likewise, you could have uh, 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 fictional works uh, that uh, that use names and likeness of uh, likenesses of famous people, either living or recently dead. Uh, uh, Forrest Gump is a classic example. Midnight in Paris. There are lots of others. Uh, so, generally speaking, if all that uh, that uh, um, OpenAI or let's say all that ChatGPT does is output some item that mentions Taylor Swift, 
Or let's say somebody says, write me a short story about Taylor Swift getting together with Elvis Presley to write a song together. And it says, oh, here's a short story about it. It's about, it mentions their name and likeness. It's for commercial purposes in the sense that OpenAI is a, is a business corporation and ChatGPT4 at least is a subscription-based product for which people pay money. But that's not going to be seen, I think, as a right of publicity infringement uh, precisely because it is, um, that kind of commercial purpose is still a fully protected purpose of providing entertainment, providing fiction, or providing sometimes factual reporting. Uh, something that, that sometimes comes up when we talk not about ChatGPT, but about visual uh, AI programs like Dolly and, and I think Stable Diffusion and various others is what happens if somebody creates, uses them to create uh, a, a picture of a person, uh, of a real person. And some of them are may refuse to do that as a matter of design, of their own design decisions, but let's say they do create a picture of a real person. And there, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, so, for example, if the picture is pornographic, there's a good deal of case law for the proposition that, in fact, the right of publicity extends to at least commercial pornography. And maybe the related sort of misappropriation of name or likeness may extend even to non-commercial pornography. On the other hand, if it's a political parody, let's say, or even non-political parody, pretty clearly going to be protected by the First Amendment. Um, and then if it's just a straight up, I want a picture of Taylor Swift to hang on my wall, uh, then that might, in fact, uh, uh, be a right of publicity infringement. Uh, and possibly also a copyright infringement if it copies a particular photograph. It's so fascinating to think through with you the effort to apply existing common law torts to this AI universe, just as Louis Brandeis did in the face of new technologies and rethinking privacy at the turn of the 20th century. Let, let's pull back to the broader ways that AI will transform our free speech universe in a world where History is rewritten, and when the, the information people find about the past online is generated by AI and can no longer be trusted as entirely reliable, how will that change our sense of truth, falsehood, and, and more generally of reality? Well, I, I do think it's a, it's a threat to our, um, our concept of truth and our insistence that public discourse have some anchor in truth, uh, I think that that anchor perhaps has already been unmoored somewhat uh, by the internet, social media, uh, just the information overload that we're facing now. And this will further destabilize uh, people's sense of where they can go for reliable information. I, I mean, I don't believe in apocalyptic theories. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an optimist. I think it relies more heavily on us exercising our critical thinking faculties, being careful about where we go for information, being careful about who we learn to rely on as critical sources of information. And it could be that uh, we are going to have to apply a great deal of skepticism to anything that comes out of OpenAI. Um, I find OpenAI valuable as an expert looking to verify things that I already know a, quite a bit about. I think for somebody starting research, not knowing anything about a topic, it's a very dangerous tool uh, because you won't be aware of what it's giving to you that's utterly false. 
Um, and so, and perhaps I'm overestimating my own abilities to discern what's utterly false in the results it's giving me, even in the area where I have some degree of expertise. Powerfully said. Um, Eugene, time for final thoughts in what I hope will be the first of many discussions with both of you, because we all have so much to learn about this brave new world. What are your thoughts about the degree to which AI challenges the founder's confidence that, as Brandeis put it, freedom to think as you will and speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth? And more broadly, give us a, a roadmap to the broad and important legal and constitutional issues that will be uh, presented by AI in the years to come. Well, the framers of the Constitution were no strangers to falsehoods or to statements that are maybe even not literally false but misleading or to opinions that are unfounded. They protected the freedom of speech and of the press despite uh, the the known reality that it could be that, that uh, uh, they could be used in dangerous and irresponsible ways. Um, and th at the same time, they recognized there were going to be exceptions to that, such as libel is the, the, the clearest, uh, uh, clearest such example. Uh, so the theory I think has never been that, uh, that freedom of speech is perfect at uncovering the truth. It's just better than the alternative. It's better than non-freedom. But this having been said, uh, it may very well be that the new technologies do make it more difficult for people to, to figure out what's really true uh, and require, require them to maybe learn some new habits or maybe relearn old habits, right? So, so it used to be, I think, that, that people generally understood that there were more trusted sources and less trusted sources. And usually the sources that were broadly available tended to be ones that were somewhat more trusted and somewhat more trustworthy, although far from perfectly trustworthy. Uh, newspapers, uh, television broadcasts and such. Uh, then I think with the growth of the internet, it became a lot easier to access all sorts of things. And somebody could just do a Google search. And if Google happened to point to some particular site, they could, they could, kind of assume, especially in low, things that are low stakes for them, that the material there is right. Uh, I think, you know, maybe, I'm, maybe it's mistaken, but it's not really worth my time to investigate further. On the other hand, if it ends up being that the great bulk of all of the pages out there are actually created by, uh, by um, AI uh, products that, uh, uh, that are being used as part of disinformation campaigns, uh, the, 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 potential for error maybe become high enough that people may need to relearn this and say, well, wait a minute, where's this from? Is there some something that indicates it's from a, a mainstream publisher for all the flaws that mainstream publishers have? Or is this maybe just a, a uh, um, something that pretends to be a mainstream publisher or pretends to be authoritative even though it's not authoritative? And by the way, this is something that people have had to deal with in regard to forgeries all the time in the past, right? Uh, that people, my understanding, at least I've heard it said, and maybe it's all made up, but I've heard it said that back when people were generally, uh, when there was a lot less writing, there, there was no print, people sort of assumed a written document must be real. It's written down. At least many people did. And of course, uh, there were lots of forgeries that exploited that, as there still are. So people might, um, people, I think, over time became more skeptical and may become, have to become more skeptical still. They need to maybe use special browsers that actually indicate 
where, where really this site is hosted, let, let's say, and uh, whether it is whether it has some validation mark. Of course, the other thing is the media would have to re-earn our trust. That I think part of the things that we've seen is media become somewhat less trustworthy. Uh, and uh, it would be good if they tried harder to to make sure that that, that what they are saying is accurate and uh, to the extent possible objective. Larissa, uh, last word to you in this really important discussion. Uh, do you agree or disagree with Eugene that in the world of AI, the responsibility primarily should remain on citizens to distinguish between true and false information with, with notable exceptions like defamation law? Um, and what do you see as the thresholds for the First Amendment of the Constitution and AI in the years to come? Well, I do believe, uh, along with Eugene, that the responsibility primarily rests on citizens. The First Amendment has long assumed that citizens are rational actors and capable of discerning truth and falsity. And only when there are system failures that, that don't permit them to do that can we allow things like transparency requirements, disclaimer requirements, disclosure requirements. And we may discover that some of those are necessary to assist us in discerning truth and falsity. And there is some some indication in First Amendment precedent that those are sometimes uh, allowed. Uh, But they're almost always preferable to complete bans on access to new media of communication. So, for example, the the TikTok bans or or any attempt to ban use of chat GPT um, is of is of. Uh, great concern if if the government endeavors to do that. So I do think um, uh, Warren, the uh, our First Amendment theory has long depended on us as citizens to rise to our best capacities um, because we don't trust the alternative, and I think that's going to be continued continue to be true regardless of what generative AI does. Beautifully said. First Amendment theory depends on us as citizens to rise to our best capacities because the alternative is worse. Thank you so much, Eugene Volek and Larissa Lidsky, for a, a, just a, a, a centrally important uh, discussion about uh, free speech, AI, and the First Amendment. Uh, as I said, I hope it's the first of many. Thank you both. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Sam Desai. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Rosemary Lee, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich using their human intelligence and capacities of reason. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. Always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the intelligence of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. 